the biggest difference that I see, and this is true across all the sales roles I've been in, is what are you most interested in? Are you most interested in what you want or what the client wants? And I've seen this in all the teams I've led and up until the team I'm leading today in Tyrol sales, I see this sometimes. Like, are you more focused on your own check and your commission and that you want to close this deal? Or are you obsessed about what the client wants and what is important to them. I think by far that makes the, the biggest difference between what's a good salesperson and a bad salesperson. It's one small step for man. Liftoff. We have a lift Features to go to the moon, not because they are easy, but because they I are I have hard. a dream. You can't handle the truth. Seven. Six. Five. Four. Three, two, one. Super, 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 you. Welcome to today's Super You Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kwame. A lot of you know me as Equal Man. Today, we've got Miss Wartoff. Nellie Wartoff is a Swedish entrepreneur who launched social learning platform Tiger Hall in 2019. And Tiger Hall helped revolutionize how professionals learn from one another in the real world. And under her leadership, Tiger Hall has quickly gained traction with users across 32 countries. And we'll also dig into how she raised over $10 million in venture capital from some of the visionary investors you've heard these names before, including Sequoia Capital and Monks Hills Ventures. So it's going to be great to unpack some of these things with Nelly here today on today's Super U podcast, which is brought to you by Amazon Prime. Well, thank you for joining us for today's Super U podcast. We've got Nelly Wartoff here. We're so excited, Nelly, and uh, it's great to see you. And you grew up in Sweden, so and then you got the entrepreneurial spirit to rock and roll because we've got a lot of entrepreneurial listeners here. So we'll start off with your company, but I do want to unpack like. How did you get into starting your own company as well? Because we have a lot of listeners uh, that are interested in that. And so with you talk about Tiger Hall, so when you've got Tiger Hall, you're obviously using social media to improve the learning capabilities within organizations. So walk us through the opportunity that you saw and also just what are you currently doing? How are you helping these companies learn better? Absolutely. And thanks for having me on the show, Eric. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, so my entrepreneurial journey started, I mean, I was one of those that were like selling stones to my relatives when I was a kid and selling lemonade on the street and so on. So I think I've always been trying to like sell something to someone <laughs> that way. And then combining that with my personal frustrations when I went through the education system. Um, so when I was in high school, I was always questioning, why are we studying the Pythagoras theorem or memorizing the periodic table? Like we're going to have no use for this when we go out and work in the real world. Um, and then after university, having felt like I learned nothing in university, coming out in the real world and starting to work in recruitment, that's when I saw these issues being even more pronounced. And I worked with my candidates who had you know GPA 4.0 and grade schools, and they were like, how do I get visibility internally? How do I launch a new market? How do I do this and that? And that's when I started thinking, hang on, like we actually don't teach people what they really need to know to be successful in life at all. And universities are a massive failure, in my opinion. They consume tons of money and some tons of time and leave you with very little to then bring out in the real world. So that's when I started thinking, how can we 
enable people to get ahead in the real world. And as a recruiter, I realized that when I was sitting down with my clients, I was recruiting for chief commercial officers, head of marketing, head of sales, president, CEOs. And I was like, I learned a lot more from them in a coffee chat than I did in my entire university education. So that's when I started thinking, how can we help people learn directly from them in a way that is much more similar to what they're doing every day on their mobile phones. Like we're all scrolling feeds and watching stories and listening to podcasts. And why don't we have people learn in that way too? So it was those two ideas that I married and combined to create what is today Tiger Hall. No, I love that. And so when you think about it, I saw that Thinkfluencers. So you're trying to get Thinkfluencers that so other people can learn from. And I love the medium. You're saying we're doing podcasts. We're learning from social media, whether it's you're learning a new golf swing, it doesn't matter. There's all yeah. these tips and tricks out there. Is you kind of put that in the platform, Tiger Hall. When you do that for an organization, are these think fluencers, the people that are actually kind of giving the education, are they outside the organization, inside the organization, or both? They're both. Good question. So we have a global network of thinkfluencers. So these are influencers that influence the way you think, which is why we call them thinkfluencers. And these are across North America, Europe, Asia Pacific, globally. And this is where people can learn from people in other companies. So a little bit what I wish LinkedIn should have been, but LinkedIn isn't because LinkedIn is just, I'm humble and grateful to announce that I took the train this morning and you can't really learn in depth from people on LinkedIn. Um, so that's the purpose of the Thinkfluencers. And you can learn, say you're in marketing in a bank, then you can learn from the CMO of a great consumer goods company and the CMO of a tech company and so on. So it's a chance for you to learn from people who are the best in the field. But then also there are some things that your colleagues and the teams within the company knows best. So then you can also learn from people internally. Because right now how that's done is most people who work in, in large global organizations, they get a lot of communication via email. It's like tons and tons of internal emails that people are just like tuning out of. Or they do global one-way town halls where someone is talking at them for like an hour and they have no chance of interacting. It's like thousands of people off camera. So it's like there aren't really any proper ways of sharing knowledge, sharing information with employees in a two-way manner. Um, you have companies producing tons of PowerPoint slides, putting them up on a SharePoint site that nobody ever goes to visit. So we also tackle that internal knowledge sharing, learning, information sharing, and so on. So that could be things like onboarding programs, sharing customer stories, sharing a transformation. A lot of our customers are using Tiger for driving change and transformation. Um, so that is a big part of it as well. So it's both external best practices and internal contextual knowledge. Okay, no, that makes sense. Then how do you get the buy-in to people to use it? Like, so that's the hardest thing, right? Salesperson, super yeah. busy. And then you've got, hey, we've got this Tiger Hall and it's got great, <laughs> Great advice on how to sell better from not only our top sales producers, but also from external sales producers. And it's it's amazing content. You'll you'll get so much out of it. Adoption. Walk me through it. Different companies do different things. Some probably use a carrot, some use a stick. You know, mm -hmm. like how do you get people to actually watch the content and, and listen to the content? That's something that we've done very, very differently just because of that. Like that, that is, and we built it for super busy people because that was one of my pain points as well. When I was an employee in a large global corporation and I had the like 
HR team or like some team coming to me and saying like, oh, honey, like take this workshop or watch this video or like go for this course. I'm like, screw you. Like I want to be here and make money and do my job. Like I don't want to go for these extra things, right? So those are the people that we've built for. And we've built for people who are super busy. They're always on the go. They're like flying out to meet customers, like sales team, as you mentioned, leaders who are very busy, like people who have a very hectic daytime job. Those are the ones that we're building for. And the way that we've done that is one, the the platform itself, using Tiger Hall is very much like using your TikTok, Instagram, Spotify. It's literally one click on your mobile phone and you're in and you can start using it. You don't have to go through like 17 clicks behind the intranet to get to some video far away that is very hard to find. And then the fact that it's bite-sized, so all the content on the platform is like three to five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, like there's barely anything that is longer than 15 minutes. So it's very easy to get in, dive into it like 10 minutes while you're waiting for that friend who's always late or during a commute and and so on. So the bite-sized piece is a big part of it. And then also the formats that you can like multitask. Like I'm a huge podcast fan and I'm listening to so many podcasts and that's how I learn. And I usually do that when I'm out running, when I'm in the gym, when I do the dishes, do the laundry and all of these like multitasking aspects. And that's where we fit in Tiger Hall as well. So a big part of the platform are podcasts and that helps people to learn on the go when they're driving or like car play when they're picking up the kids from school. Um, So it's very much fitting into your life short, easy to access, very succinct, and a great platform that just doesn't take any time to navigate. No, I love it. I call that good tasking. So I do it a ton as well. Sometimes with the chagrin of my wife, that's like, are you taking your AirPods out of your head while you're just <laughs> cooking or, or doing something? I'm like, no, it's like relaxes me. I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning. It's good. Whether it's Spanish or whether it's uh, just taking advice on some of these great podcasts that are out there, you, you, that's a good, good, good medium to use. So I like that you've made it bite size and, and more how we live. So that's good. Now, speaking of how we live, a lot of our listeners would be curious to know, start with me. So your top biller, your top biller at Michael Page, uh, like you said, you've kind of been selling most of your life. You see this need. Walk us through the journey of when you decided, man, I'm really successful what I'm doing, but I've got this itch. Just walk us through how difficult that decision was to kind of to jump off the boat, to start your own company, um, and then also to raise capital. You've raised it from Sequoia Capital, some of the big names out there. So if you don't mind, just walk us through that that whole journey. Absolutely. So it wasn't a very difficult decision for me to make to start my own. And I think part because I've always kind of been running companies. Like I started a company when I was 16 that was helping senior citizens, everyone's grandparents to utilize social media and computers. So it was like technological education for elderly. I did my own social media consulting firm when I was 18. And I've always kind of dabbled in something outside of my main gig um, to, to be in business and do my own business. So when I was at Michael Page and I was like full-time employee, top builder and so on, um, to make the decision wasn't, it wasn't very scary in that sense. Um, But also because I have this very intense feeling that life is so, so short. Like many times I think like I'm probably going to die young or something. (laughs) I literally feel like life is so short and there is no point in like living the default path and like doing a proper 
like what do you call it like climbing the career ladder and getting title after title like why should i do that like it's so many people already doing it it's so many people that are like living that life doing the corporate career and like getting ahead that way and that's all well and good but we don't need more people who do that so i have this very high desire and need to do something very different and to to do something that's very challenging and because life is short and I'm kind of like I, I want to do something before I die right like while I have the chance so those were the two factors that pushed me like yeah I'll, I'll just do it and I also have this like what's the worst thing that can happen like for example I moved alone to Singapore when I was 18 and no one in my family has ever been to Asia like we grew up in a very small village in Sweden and people have barely been out in Europe and then when I was 18 I was like I booked a one-way flight to Singapore. I'm going to move to Singapore. And people were like, you're what? Like no one even knew where Singapore was, right? But all I thought was, what's the worst thing that can happen? The worst thing is that I have to take a flight back. Like that's Mm -hmm. literally the worst thing that can happen. And the same with starting a company, right? Like what's the worst thing that can happen? I have to look for a full-time job again or I do something else. Like I'll figure it out, right? So I made the decision to do something different and, um, and try it out. And then... When I started out, I raced around before I had any product or anything. So it was me and a PowerPoint deck. And I've always been a volume person. Um, so I've always been someone that like at Michael Page, for example, I worked 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. every single day because everyone else had way more experience than I had. And they had been there for a longer time. They knew more clients and candidates. So I was like, the only thing I can compete with is work ethic, right? Um, and that's how I how I made it there. And it was a little bit similar when I started raising capital. So I've always been someone who is very throwing myself out there, contacting a lot of people, making long lists, meeting tons of people, networking, reaching out, connecting with people. That's kind of been my my way of combating any kind of challenge um, that I have. And the same when I'm trying to learn something new, I'm like, who could I learn this from? Who could I reach out to? Who could I have a chat with? So when I was fundraising, I was telling everyone that that I was fundraising. And I took up a lot of these roles like hosting. I was the ambassador of a small world um, in Singapore, which allowed me to host events. And that's something I really, really recommend for networking is to always be the host. Never go to a ton of events, but host a ton of events because then you have a natural chance to speak with everyone who's there. So, so that's what I did. Told everyone I was fundraising. And like by one of these events, got someone who knew someone that, oh, I know someone who's looking to invest in a digital education business in Asia. And this was a man who was running a business in Denver, Colorado. And this investment banker who had met me connected us. And I pitched this PowerPoint presentation to him. And uh, he said, why don't you come work for us? I was like, no, that's not the point. Like, I'm going to do this, but you can come work for me. Like, you can invest in the company and be part of this. Um, so that's how how it started. And then I used that to build the platform, recruit the initial team. Um, and then the same, the way I got Sequoia Capital on board was, again, cold email. Um, so a lot of things in my life I've done by persistency, um, resilience, just reaching out, trying, like talking to people. Um, and that's how I got Sequoia. So I called, emailed Peter Kemps, who's still our partner um, and who I work very closely with. And I dropped him a cold email. I said, hey, I've heard great things about you and how you work with your founders. And this is what I'm trying to do and the problem I'm trying to solve. Uh, would love to chat more about it. Um, and he was like, can I meet you tomorrow? Um, and then we met. And then two days later, I met the other partners, and then we decided to work together. So, so yeah, so cold email and outreach and networking has been a big part of, of what I've been doing. No, that's nice. And then when you say you host an event, you literally, it's a physical event to where you go, all right, I'm going to get the venue. I'm going to call it this. 
I've got to put the money up front for this, and then I've got to get, I guess, sponsors. Are you charge a ticket price? Or like, are you or are you taking a loss on these these events that you'd host? So I would sometimes take a loss. Sometimes I just pay for it myself, um, depending yeah. on what event it is. And sometimes it's many times it's a partnership with the bar. Um, so I would say, like, usually I would take Wednesday evenings or Thursday evenings because those are a little bit quieter and the bars want foot traffic, right? So I would tell right. them, can I have this reserved area? Can I, like, close off this area of your bar? And I will bring in 40, 50 people to this event, which means that they're going to make money, right? Um, and then I might do some some negotiations, like, can we have the first drink for free? And then after that, they're going to pay for their own drinks. Um, so I would do things like that. But yeah, always physical events, meeting people in person. So I can go around and be like, hi, I'm Nelly Wartoft. Hi, I'm Nelly Wartoft. and talking to everyone. Um, so that's how I got to know a lot of people. Um, and being the host is, is such a, because then like you put yourself in the center of the network, everyone comes to you and you have this chance to, to interact with everyone. So that's much more powerful than being a guest who like stands in the corner and then like trying to work your way around the room, right? Like then you have a natural way if you're the host to just walk up to everyone, introduce yourself and have a conversation. No, that's great. And then what about any lessons you learned raising capital? I'm sure you've, I, I, I could be wrong, but I'm sure you got told no a couple of times. Uh, maybe that's not true, but Most I should have told you a couple of times. But like, what are the things they're like? Oh, I didn't expect that. Like something that a new person that the listener, it's their first company. They're listening. They're like, I've, I've decided to go my company. I'm going to raise capital. Like, what are some of the things on that path that they might not be aware of? They can learn from you, kind of learn from almost your mistakes or not mistakes, but just kind of those arrows you took in the back. So I've had tons and tons of no's. I think I've probably had 600, 700 no's. And especially before I got Sequoia Capital on board, it was really, really hard to even get a meeting. Like people didn't even want to meet me, right? Like then after getting the brand name, then like a lot more doors open up and so on. Um, but general advice I would say is really, really look at the funds. Like what are they investing in? Because that's quite different. Like if you have a fund, for example, like... For me, if I look at our Series A um, that was led by Monk's Hill Ventures, which is a fund uh, based out of Southeast Asia, and our biggest market is the US. Yep. So, and I'm now based here and so on. So, but racing from funds in Southeast Asia, many of them have LP mandates to only invest in Southeast Asian markets, like in companies that are building for Southeast Asia and the rising middle class in Southeast Asia and so on. So, when I if I'm going to speak to those, it doesn't matter how good my business is because my main market is the US and their mandate is to invest in Southeast Asia. So checking the investment mandate is very key. And you also have many funds have limitations on like things like check size, what round they come in at. Everyone would have some kind of ownership target. So check that as well. Many of them have their like industry preferences, what stage they want to get into, markets and so on. And this is not necessarily coming from them as partners all the time is usually coming from the LPs. And the LPs would say, like, we've invested in a fund that is going to invest in, say... LP being a limited partner, just so the listeners yes, know. Correct. LP correct, being yeah. a limited partner is giving that Sequoia Capital the money that they then kind of package into a fund and have to invest in companies like yours, correct? Exactly, okay. exactly. It's the people with the... Because VCs don't actually have any money, right? Like, it's the LP's money. And then yeah. they invest the LP's money. So, um, so yeah. So, and they usually give them like, okay, I have this investment thesis that I want to invest in the rising middle class in Indonesia, for example. Mm -hmm. 
And then if I come and I say like, oh, we do enterprise business in the US, that's gonna, not going to match with their thesis, right? So that thesis becomes important. Um, the second thing is volume, like which is my approach to everything. Like I speak with tons of funds and tons of investors and also keep in touch in between rounds. And the third thing I think is actually very important is also your energy. Um, I see many founders that I speak to to that ask me for like help to pitch and so on. And then I'm like, okay, like share your pitch with me. And then they start with, okay, so so we've experienced this market problem and da da da. I'm like, are you passionate about this? Like, do you want to solve this? Do you care about this? And energy is contagious, right? So if you yeah. show up to an investor meeting with that energy, the passion, like showing what you actually want to do and be open energy-wise around it, that helps a lot. Because investors are also humans, right? Like they want to interact with people who are who are fun, who are energetic, that make them feel inspired. Like they don't want to, like sure, investment decisions are sometimes logical, but most of the time is also fairly emotional, especially early stage, right? Because early stage, you don't have the data to go on like you would in a private equity investment. So, so the energy, how you show up, how you interact with them, that's also incredibly key. No, that's huge. And then I don't know if you're allowed to disclose this, but what about once you get someone that's interested, they're like, yep, we're going to fund it. The equity stake, I mean, have you given up control like more than 50%? Because people always go in, I'm just going to make sure I have 51%. And then they get in there and it's like, well, I got to I gotta give a little bit more than 51%. So I'm not controlling. I mean, any, th any advice on that front? Well, my advice would be to... Like you really, really want people on board that you really enjoy working with. Um, and I'm lucky to say that's the case for me. Like the two biggest investors that we have, Sequoia Capital and Monksill Ventures, those two, like I love working with those funds. We have great partners on the board and like I have really good relationships with them. So that's very important when you consider like who you who you bring on board, because it is like it is like hiring someone that you can't fire. So if you're going to hire a senior leader in your company and you know that you can't fire them, like what kind of due diligence would you do a lot, right? But somehow many founders, when they see that, oh, I can get millions of dollars, like then they just like stop their due diligence and don't do that. Like speak with founders who have worked with those partners before, speak with people who, who know the fund, speak with people who work at the fund, like, you know, do, do your due diligence because it is like, it is pretty much like marrying someone. Yeah, no, I like that. It's hiring somebody can't fire. That's a good way to put it. And you mentioned earlier in your background that sales, we're all in sales. And obviously, as the head of a, an organization, that you got to continue to sell. For most of the listeners out there, what do you see in the top performers that are different than those that aren't top performers when it comes to basically being able to get the job done and selling? The biggest difference that I see, and this is true across all the sales roles I've been in, is what are you most interested in? Are you most interested in what you want or what the client wants? And I've seen this in all the teams I've led and up until the team I'm leading today in Tyrol sales, I see this sometimes. Like, are you more focused on your own check and your commission and that you want to close this deal? Or are you obsessed about what the client wants and what is important to them. I think by far that makes the, the biggest difference between what's a good salesperson and a bad salesperson. And the ones who are performing, including myself in my history, it's always been around being innately curious and obsessive about like, like what, what is it that the client needs? Like, what do you want? And how does this work? And how is that manifesting in your organization? How do you feel that pain? And who else feels it? And how could that be solved? And just be super, super curious. 
that is the highest performing salespeople. And the lowest performers are the ones that, okay, can we close now? Just following up, just nudging this up your inbox. Hello, can we check in? Can we have another call? Like, why would I care about having another call? Like, if you're not caring about solving my problem, why would I care? Like, if you're just checking in or just following up, and when sellers do this to me as well, when they're trying to sell services to Tiger Hall, I'm like, why would I want to have another call with you? Like, tell me again how you can solve my problem and that you found something or you thought of something that could help me in this way. So that is by far the biggest difference between high performance and low performance. And second to that, I would say work ethic. I've never seen a seller who has the first level of like curiosity for our clients' needs. A person who has that and works hard will never, ever fail in sales. Never. I've never seen that happening. If you have the work ethic, you're willing to put in the hours, you're doing the research, you're doing the outreach, you're doing the cold calls, you're doing the hard stuff, you will always be successful if you have those two. No, I love that. I think the first one's a real salient point rather than just saying, hey, I'm just re- reaching out to see. It's really, if you were to say that, it's like, hey, I just came across this. I think this could probably really help your group, your audience, your organization get to your desired goal of X. I just yeah. wanted to send you that note. Okay, that's that's interesting. That's really good. That's really good. And then do you can you ask those specifically in there? Hey, just wanted to follow up. And then you have the value add. I thought this would be really interesting for that problem you're trying to solve. I think this will be a, a big component of it. What, yeah. do you say what are the next steps or how do you ask for kind of like the timeline? So the way that I do it is I treat it like project management. So I ask all of those questions in the first meeting, like, okay, but what if you don't do it? Like, what if you're, say you want to, say they want to like, okay, I want to roll out Tiger Hall in January, right? Then I would always question them, like, why do you want to do that? Like, why, why January? Why is that important? Like, and why Tiger Hall? Like, why not just do nothing? Because most of the case, or most of the time, and that is the case for us as well, and for, I think, many sellers, your competition is actually not them going with another vendor, unless it's an RFP or similar, your competition is inertia. Mm -hmm. It's them doing nothing, sitting on their asses and not moving. And they will not solve it in another way. It will just be a lower priority that won't be solved at all. So that's why I always ask these questions around why January? Why is that important? Why do you want to do this at all? Like, why, why is this important to you? Why is this even an initiative? And then when you have all of those answers, those are the answers that you use in your follow-up. So if they say, no, but if we don't launch in January, then we're going to miss the start of the financial year. And then we're going to get into July. And by that time, we're going to miss the goals, da, 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 da. Then that is what you use in the follow-ups. So then you don't say, hey, just checking in. Can we talk next week? Yeah. Then you're thinking, Hey, I'm a bit concerned because if we don't have this aligned right now, we're going to miss the January launch and then you're not going to hit your target until July. And I wouldn't like if that happens and I'm sure you probably wouldn't either. So how about we do this right now and I can solve this for you and then you can solve this. So the second part of that is I do this, you do the other thing so that you always offer like I do my piece of work and then you do your piece of work. So you always have equal amounts of work because that psychologically puts someone like, oh, shit, like she's done her side of the job. Now I need to do my side of the job as well. And that side of the job might be the other meeting or preparing the business case or looping in the next stakeholder or similar. No, that's good. Yeah, I like that. Or legal. You're like, hey, I can do this on this end. We've adjusted the contract so it's a little easier to digest. Uh, if you could take this to legal, uh, that'd be great. So that's, yeah. that's awesome. That's really good. You don't want to 
in a chasing position like that's the worst if you find yourself ending up in a chasing position then i just say hey it seems like this is not a priority for you anymore and it seems like the january launch is not mattering anymore to reaching your july target so if anything changes let me know i don't want to chase you and sometimes i just call it out I'm not going to chase you. I'm not going to follow up with you every week. Like, if you want to do this, you tell me I'm here. I'll make this work for you anytime, but I don't want to chase you. So I'll, I'm just here if you want to reach out. Nice. Will you actually use I will not chase you in the email? Yeah. Oh, yeah, nice. And I say, I don't want to chase you. Like, I'm sure you get a lot of emails. I don't want to add to your email inbox, right? That's so a good way to put it. And I don't want to chase you around with all these emails. So, but I'm here if you need it. We'd love to partner, but it exactly. looks like you probably moved on. Exactly. Because if someone has moved on, they're not responding. I just say like, you know, it seems like this is not interesting to you anymore because I haven't gotten a response in a month. So, but I'm here if you need anything. Otherwise, let's touch base in January again or something like that. So, because that's also, it's a bit of self-respect, right? Like sometimes I feel sellers are just lacking self-respect and they just put themselves out there like, hey, checking in, checking in and following up. And like, you also are a person, like you have value you have something valuable to say and like you can't just be out there chasing and checking in right like have a little bit of self-respect and self-value too that's good and then as we wrap things up here with your own sales team do you check in once a week or how does that look like and what do you check in what's the most important thing that you're covering there's tons of stuff you're covering but what's the one thing that kind of goes first principle like i need to know this from every one of you what does that look like so I usually ask questions like I treat my check-ins with a team, and this is not only in sales, but in general across the business, as how can I learn more? So mm -hmm. it's not so much about me checking, have you done your work, Eric? It's more like, oh, Eric, what did you learn in this? Like, what were the reasons they didn't want to go ahead? Okay, what can we learn from that? Okay, what were the reasons they were buying? What is the difference you're seeing here? And if we look at this set of deals and this set of deals, what are the patterns that you're seeing? So my goal is very much to help them think, and that also helps me learn about the business. So instead of doing like a checkbox that, okay, you've done this, you've delivered this, KPIs whatsoever, I just try to make them think instead. And I see that as like, my biggest job as, as a CEO is to shape the thinking of my team and make them think, make them see patterns, recognize patterns, analyze so that I don't have to be there in the future to ask these questions, but they will ask them th themselves and they will learn by asking themselves, why do they not go ahead? Okay, what could we have done differently? Why do why do these clients love Tiger Hall and what can we learn from them? So just inculcating this way of thinking is most of my check-ins. No, I love it. And then what have you learned using, I'm sure you use Tiger Hall yourselves within Tiger Hall. Uh, yeah. What have you guys discovered and uncovered through that process? So a few things. I mean, I, I use it myself every day um, because every day I'm like walking somewhere or going to the gym or cooking. I use it as that you're like good usage or like good uh, multitasking. Um, good tasking, yep. <laughs> Thank you. So I use it for that to get, like for me personally, it helps me get that like daily reminder and daily insight of like a high level perspective of how can I go from good to great? Like, how can I be a better leader? How can I help our clients better? How can I be a better leader for the sales team and so on? And just getting those 10 minutes nuggets every day just helps me stay on track and not get drawn in too much into detail or let things take certain like too much um, priority, like out of proportion. Um, so that's how I use it personally. 
And as a team, we use it for our onboarding, our product updates are in Tiger Hall. So if we launch something new, then the product team goes live and they're like, hey, sales team, we just launched this and they post it on Tiger Hall. Um, we have the feed there. We have the groups where you can chat and like share knowledge and insights and learn with each other. Um, so we have a lot of different use cases. And in onboarding, for example, every single employee on Tiger Hall, we call it who's who in the zoo. Yeah. Oh, nice. I like that. Who's who in the zoo? That's good. Yeah. And then they have a video where they were like, this is my personality. This is how I like to communicate. This is what I do for work. And then everyone can watch those videos and get to know the employees across the business, which helps a lot because we're a fully remote organization globally. So that helps people get to know each other faster. Um, and then sometimes we do our town halls on there, like live streaming out to a certain group and capturing customer stories we have on there. Like, what is the story of our customers? Why do they buy Tiger Hall? What are they using it for? Use cases and so on. So so lots of those um, are areas that we use Tiger Hall for internally. No, I love it. And then one last question before I open it up for anything we didn't cover that we should have covered. For your clients or partners, when they're using Tiger Hall and they have an external Thinkfluencer, are those people sometimes paid or, or not? They're always, how does that work? What's that model look like? So they're paid. They're okay. paid. So we do. So it's digital contents so on Tiger Hall. You find podcasts, power reads, uh, live streams, videos, and so on. And that digital content is something we create together with the Thinkfluencers. Okay. Uh, and they are not paid for that. But when we do the one-to-one -one mentoring, the group sessions, the bespoke corporate sessions, like more like the enterprise engagements that take their time, then they are compensated for that. Um, so, so that's how it works. Okay, that's how it works. So they kind of develop the content in the hopes that it leads to something bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And it drives a lot of personal branding. It drives thought leadership for them. They have over 100,000 people that tune in every week listening to their advice and they get them like followers on LinkedIn and all of those kind of things. So it's a very good marketing platform for them for sharing thought leadership. Um, and then, of course, if they spend like X amount of hours with one of our customers, then that's a, like a normal per hour kind of charge. Uh, it's Tiger Hall. So check it out. I love it. And it's it's Nelly Wartoff. So it's so good. And I love their story going from, hey, I'm just taking a one way ticket to Singapore. Why not? What's the worst that can happen? I can take it, buy a ticket to fly back. Uh, and then you use that same mentality as you start all your companies. So uh, rooting you on, cheering you on from here. I love it. Tiger Hall. Everyone go check it out. It's, it's wonderful. And uh, you might infuse it into your organization as well. So it's a, a better way to learn. So it's, it's great. I love that you saw the opportunity and just, just went for it. So thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for having me. It was fun to chat with you. That was Nellie Wartoff, everybody. Again, she's the CEO of Tiger Hall. If you want to know more about Tiger Hall, it's at tigerhall.com. Once again, that's tigerhall.com. Thanks again for tuning in to today's Super U podcast. It was produced by Jake Brin, Maritza Gutierrez, and also Kelsey Gomez. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're starting to have more of these interview sessions along with some of the, the shows where you give seven super tips, along with some shows where it's just me being interviewed on other podcasts. So thanks again for all the support and the love. And if you ever want to reach out to me, it's equalman at equalman.com. We do get to most of your questions and try to cover them off on the shows. We definitely take to heart any suggestions that you have around the show and thanks again for all those five star ratings you keep posting out there on itunes and spotify and the likes so thank you thank you thank you and until next time remember we're all superheroes we just need that courage to wear the cape and it's not what we take from the world it is what we leave behind seven six 
Five, four, three, two, one. Super, 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 you. Oh, 